You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. How's everyone doing? It's good to see some extra faces this morning. I made that joke about going to Florida and not going to church, and everybody came back from Florida, <laughs> including my parents. <laughs> Um, so I'm, we're so glad you're here in the room today. We're glad you're joining us online today. Um, you know, we've been kind of uh, doing a series. We talked about joy in the beginning of the year. And last week I talked about the fig tree and being fruitful. And we're kind of going to take, you know, a, a step off of that today and kind of continue that message. But I just wanted to share briefly. I went to Portland. I think I've been sharing that. I went to Portland this last week. I left Monday. Or no, actually I left Sunday. I got there. Uh, late Sunday night and spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday with uh, myself and Mark Estes, who's the pastor of Manor House Church, and then three other pastors from around uh, the nation and actually world. Uh, one of the pastors, uh, it's really incredible to meet some of these guys. I've heard their names over the years. One guy, his name's Phil Jake with um, Awesome, incredible guy, 35 years living in Mexico as a missionary, has planted 193 churches. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, and uh, no joke, there was one morning where we were talking, and I was just talking to him a ton, actually, and he was like, well, you know, he's 70 now, okay? And he's like, I've got 10 more years, and honestly, I just feel like I barely got started. I, I really should have like 5,000 churches by now. And I looked at him like, are you serious? Are you literally I'm like, I'm hoping for 25, like, in the next 40 years. <laughs> he was like, well, 25 in the United States is a lot of churches. He's like, it's way harder here than it is in Mexico. Um, so it was really incredible to meet with these guys, and we just dreamed together. Um, I will probably share even more uh, over the next number of weeks of what took place there as I kind of processing with uh, my wife and uh, actually want to share with the elders. And honestly, it was, I guess there was two things I came away with that I would say right now. One is it was overwhelming <laughs> um, in a great way. The other was we have no idea what we have here. And it, I'm, I'm serious. I, I gained a perspective meeting with these guys. So, you know, um, even minus internationally, like that guy is, an, you know, abnormal, 193 churches, that's abnormal. Um, but nationally in Manor House, they that are gathering with us in this kind of larger family that we talk about. There's 28, I think, American churches in the U.S. that are gathering together and we're working together. Um, of those churches, uh, just being really blunt, we're, other than Manor House, so like I look at Manor House, which was, it's huge, right? Right now, I think there are about four to 5,000 people. Uh, before COVID, they were almost 9,000. And... They've always had this huge success, 70 years. I've always kind of, in a sense, idolized what they've done. And the churches they've planted, I, I assumed, were as successful. And not to say they aren't successful, they are. But I think sometimes when you look outside yourself, you're always thinking people are doing better than they are. And when we judge ourselves next, next to everyone else, we always think we're not doing as good as everyone else. And what I found out is we're doing pretty dang amazing. For real. Across the country, we're doing amazing as a church. And it's not just because of me as a leader or a staff. It's because of you. 
the the things that God has done through this church in 40 years are it's few and far between. And that I came home like realizing even more so. I, I've always captured this idea of like, man, look what God's done in NTC and and kind of just understood like, wow, we have something special. I came away realizing we have something extremely special as a church family. And so I, I just wanted to honor you guys. Like, I I get to do this with you. We get to do this Christianity thing together. We get to see the kingdom extended together. You know, I, I love the fact that even in these last two years, when things have been hard, we haven't stopped moving. We didn't just settle in and, and put Sean survival mode to just make it through. We decided we were going to step forward and go wherever Jesus was going. That's an incredible choice. And, and I'm telling you, it's not happening most places. Jesus is doing something incredible through you in this region in the North Country. And I can't wait to see what he's going to continue to do. You know, um, the other thing that I felt like I took away from there is get ready. <laughs> and I don't even know what to say to that, but I literally was overwhelmed. I was talking to my wife the last night on the phone. And, and this is not a joke. It's almost embarrassing. I'm talking to her, trying to share what took place, and I was shaking. I was literally shaking because of the realization of what God wants to do through us. And, and it's, it's humbling in a way because the, the very next thought after an excitement is, I think you chose poorly, Jesus. <laughs> Like, are you sure you want to try to do this with us North Country folks? You know, like, this almost doubt comes in immediately, like, oh, I don't know if we're able. But I'm telling you, we are able to accomplish infinitely more than we might even ask or think because of the Holy Spirit within us. If, if honestly, we might just be a little bit bold enough to step out and say, yes, Jesus. If we might just push aside thoughts to say, I'm not good enough, I'm not ready enough, I don't have what it takes, and step in wherever God's calling us. When we begin to do that, even more than we have, because I'm telling you we have, get ready for what God's going to do. Get ready for what he wants to do. In you, as an individual, and through us as a church, God wants to do incredible things. All right, that's my mini message. Um, so here we are. Fruit, we're talking about fruit. So if you can open your Bibles to Matthew 7, I want to start in a scripture. And I'm going to kind of share a couple stories that highlight uh, just some thoughts around what it means to produce fruit in our lives. What it means to be fruitful people. You know, we talked last week that since the beginning of time, right? Genesis 1, it says every uh, tree bears fruit after its own kind. And then, you know, it goes on to tell hum humanity and at the end of Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. We were called to be fruitful people. We're not called to be stagnant. We're not called to just exist. We're not just called to make it through. We're called to be fruitful and that's in a million ways. I, I highlighted a lot what, John, what Jesus says in John 4, that, you know, the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. But the truth is, fruitfulness in the kingdom happens in a lot of ways. The first one is that we're supposed to take the fruit God produces in us and see it produced in other people. But first, you have to have fruit produced in you to help others find that same fruit. You have to see God transform you from what you were at one point to what God's designed you to be in your life. 
You're not supposed to stay the same. Coming to Jesus or going to church is not about finding this ticket to heaven or this salvation moment. It is the beginning, but that's just the beginning of the race. We've talked about it a thousand times. And if we stop there, then we actually miss out on the transformation of what God wants to do with us and through us. And that's what we have to look into. What does it look like to produce the fruit in our lives that Jesus calls us to produce? So Matthew 7, we're going to read this scripture. This is an incredible chapter. There's like a ton in here. Um, And it is all connected, but we're just going to read verses 7. Uh, Yeah, no, sorry, verses 17 through 18, okay? So chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, a good tree produces good fruit. And a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. What amazing revelation. (laughs) I want to read it off your notes now, because I just read out of the New Living Translation, but the ESV says it a little differently. It says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear fruit good fruit. All right, so very simple thought here, but quite important for our lives. And one of the things that happens within us is that we start to, as Christians, we start to try to evaluate the fruit, and it's easy for us to see all the misgivings in our lives or the mistakes we make or the wrong choices we have. But I want to I challenge us today that, and, and the whole point of today's message is this. Nothing really appears as it seems on the outside. How many of us have gone to the store and bought fruit that looked wonderful on the outside, cut into it, and were gravely disappointed? It looked fine on the outside. The skin looked good. It maybe even felt right. But you cut in and it's moldy or it's, or it's got something living inside it. Or, you know, and, and then you're wondering how long has it been on the shelf and then you find out it came from you know, 15,000 miles away on the other side of the world and who knows how long it was in a shipping container stuck on the ports. And there's all this stuff that goes into it. But sometimes it's easy to look at a fruit and go, oh, that, that looks fine. And think it's good, but it doesn't turn out to be good. You see, sometimes, I like this word when the the scripture in the ESV where he says a diseased tree and diseased fruit, instead of just bad. Because sometimes I think we, we, we think it's easy to evaluate fruit by just simply looking at outsides. But how, how often does disease always show on the outside? Usually disease is internal long before it becomes external. And, and today, we need to evaluate first our lives, but it's also this idea of, like, how do we look at the world without just judging the external all the time? So Jesus makes this very plain statement, but he's challenging them. And in fact, the reason this is in this category here, he's, he, it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of this is very confrontational to religious leaders of the time. So I want to I jump just a few verses later. He's challenging people who call themselves, you know, well, at the time, not Christians, Jews. And they were following Judaism, and he was challenging that the, the fact that they looked good on the outside, but they didn't look good on the inside. And even we get down to uh, 
chapter, it's the same chapter, 7, just a few verses later, verse 23. I've read this scripture a million times where Jesus makes a statement. He says, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. In your notes it says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus was making this claim that though someone would call out his name, some would even say, oh, but we performed miracles and we did these good works in your name. He's going to say this to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. And there's this thought, I just want it to hang in your, 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 your world right now, workers of lawlessness. But now let's turn to Matthew 23. If you want to know if Jesus ever said mean things, read Matthew 23. It's not just one, it's a whole lot of them. We're going to read just one near the end of him basically very loudly, verbally, and harshly putting the religious leaders in their place. And he gets near the end of, it's kind of these scriptures, he keeps saying, woe to you Pharisees and religious leaders. Woe to you scribes and leaders of religious law. Woe to you. And he makes these harsh statements about what they're really like. And we get down to verse 27, he says this, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones in all sorts of uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's kind of brutal. I mean, Jesus, come on. Calm down. This is what Jesus, this is how serious Jesus takes, I think, the fruit of our lives. And I think he takes it extra serious when people put on a cloak of Christianity or religiousness and then internally are nothing like what they're supposed to be. He's extremely challenging to those people. In fact, he's outright harsh. But then I love on the opposite side of that. You see stories like a woman dragged in the middle of committing adultery to the street to be stoned. And Jesus stops all of them and says, you know, those of you who have no sin, cast the first stone. And he lifts her up and he, he covers her and he sends her on her way and he says, go and sin no more. But he literally loves this person because she's not faking it. If Jesus hates anything in this world, it's fake fruit. It's a fruit that you think you can cut into and get something good out of, and then it's ugly on the inside. Jesus hates it. He despises it. He, he literally says, whoa, 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 what sorrow awaits you. Not good things for your life, for Jesus to say that. And so as Christians, those of us that are Christians listening today, followers of Jesus, we have to first literally go, Jesus, please don't let me ever be that which I've done 100,000 times. Because you know how easy it is to slip into that? You know how easy it is to come to Jesus, and then you come to church, and you have this experience with him? And then it's easy for us to just kind of slip into this kind of right way of looking, not always right way of living. 
And so we come and we put on the right clothes and we hopefully show up to church on time and, you know, we sign up for small group or we, we, we do some serving and we try to look right on the outside, yet we have somehow kept Jesus from internally transforming us. And this is a warning to all of us. And it should be taken that way. Not, not to be beaten over the head with, but just simply to go, Jesus, please don't let me wind up like that. And I'll tell you this. If your heart is simply that, Jesus, don't let me be this whitewashed tomb, guess what? You won't be. Because that's what, you know, if you come to church here for a while you know, one of the greatest compliments I think that people give coming here is, and it's almost always out of a surprised note, they say, wow, you guys are so real. Like, yeah, we're real people. We mess up. We swear from the pulpit. We get angry. We make mistakes. And we're not going to hide them. We're not going to pretend to look like something we're not. Because if anything, I want Jesus to just, I want to admittingly show, this is who I am. It's not perfect yet, but Jesus is making me into something more like him. Jesus is transforming me into something more like him, so that when I actually go out and produce fruit, it's real fruit. Because if we just put on a show for the world to see, and then we produce fruit like Jesus calls us, guess what kind of fruit we're going to produce? Just like us, fruit. Fruit that is possibly fake on the out in the inside and just trying to look good on the outside i think it's why whole movements of christianity have suffered deeply because we got into a tradition or a ritual ritualistic way of following christ instead of just grabbing the scriptures and letting the gospel transform us we just got into this tradition-based idea of following him and it just became about looking right and doing right rather than jesus actually changing us to being right and i'll tell you what if anything's true about 2022 people can smell fake a long ways away you know, I often say to my kids, man, I'm glad there were no cell phones when I was your age. Because I would not want documented all the dumb things I chose to do. I mean, my gosh, think about it. Literally, you can't get away with anything in this world anymore. There's always someone with a camera ready to video you and then put it online. And there's this, there's this kind of, I think, really good thing happening in the world where literally it's hard to be fake harder to be fake than it used to be now we all try really hard with social media we try hard with you know the 10 selfies we take and then pick the one we're always trying to look a certain way yet jesus is going to teach us through these scriptures and what we're going to see through these next couple stories is jesus does not care about what we look like on the outside it's only about what kind of fruit we're producing internally so now let's turn to 1 Samuel 9. I want to talk about two different people this morning. Just kind of compare uh, their stories to our life. And the first one is, is Saul. Now many of us maybe know about Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. And we kind of know a little bit of the backstory. You know, you know we see God rescue 
uh, his people out of Egypt, and you know they come into the wilderness, and you've got Moses, and you've got Joshua who leads them into the promised land, and now they're in the promised land, and a lot, you know, history has been taking place, but they've never had a king. They've had leaders. They've had people leading them, but they've never had a king. And in fact, if you go far enough back, you, you find out God says, I don't want you to have a king. And he says this, because I'm your king. But the people get basically tired of God being their king, and they start demanding, and they actually demand it from Samuel, who's the prophet for God. They, they say, we want a king. Give us a king. And Samuel tries to remind them, no, no, God's your king. You don't need a king. But they end up demanding it over and over, and, and we get to this place where Saul comes into the picture, and it's, it's interesting because basically, and, and listen, this is a really big thought, and I'm not going to tackle today, but they actually alter God's decision about this. You see, God doesn't want them to have a king, but then he actually gives them a king after they demand it enough. You know, sometimes God gives in to our demands even when they're not healthy for us. And I think it's kind of a a place, I do the same thing for my kids. They'll want to do something and I'm trying to convince them that's not the best way to do it. And then eventually I go, fine, you want to learn the hard way? (laughs) I think this is a God going, you want to learn the hard way? Okay, here's your king. And he gives them Saul and it's kind of a long story leading up to how Saul becomes the king. It's this weird situation where he loses donkeys and he meets Samuel. It's really weird. But we're going to just start with verse uh, 2 in chapter 9, just to give you a description. And it says this, There was a wealthy, influential man, verse 1, sorry, uh, named, uh, named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abel, son of Zerah, son of blah, 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 the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel. Wouldn't this be nice? If the Bible recorded you this way. Head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. The most handsome man in Israel. And this story takes place where he meets Samuel and God says, hey, here's the king that you can anoint. This is the guy who you can have lead my people. And we're going to jump all the way down to chapter 10. And we're going to jump all the way down to verse 19. I think it's in your notes too. 1 Samuel 10, 18 and 19. And we get to this spot, and it's really interesting. Actually, we'll read it right off your notes. And, and Samuel is speaking now for God as he's about to anoint you know, him king and then display to the Israelites, this is now your king. And this is what Samuel decides to say. And it's from God. He says, but though I have rescued you from your misery and distress, this is God speaking through Samuel, you have rejected your God today and have said, no, we want a king instead. So even before he's about to give them what they want, he reminds them, I saved you from your distress. I saved you from all the, the things happening in Egypt and all the things happening in the wilderness. I've saved you all this time, and now you're rejecting me because you want a king instead. Here you go. I think God will do this to us at times. This reminder of what he did to save us. I think we come to Jesus, we sometimes have this experience with him, we realize he saves us, and then almost immediately after we're like, wow, great, we got through that situation 
and now I want a different thing instead. Never mind, I'm going to go to this, this trust. I'm going to put my trust over here, maybe in my finances instead, or I'm going to put my trust now in my, my job and my reputation. I'm going to put my trust in my own willpower. And we take back the very thing that we gave God when he rescued us. You see, the thing I love about God through the Old Testament and all the way in the New Testament, what Jesus restores, is he wants relationship directly with you. He doesn't want relationship through anything else. You know, there's no medium to God. He's taken that away. When Jesus died on the cross, right, there's this story that the minute he dies, and his, it says the spirit leaves him, it says the, the, the temple uh, curtain was torn in two. And there was this curtain in the temple, and in, on the back side of the curtain was the Holy of Holies. It's where God's presence literally resided. And no one could go in there. But when that curtain torn to is this representation, now everybody is available to enter the presence of God. But what's interesting is, that was a restoration of what it was always supposed to be like. But we kept, as people, as humans, putting ourselves, putting something between us and God. First, it was Moses, actually. You know, they, a whole bunch of them were invited to go up on the mountain to meet God with him. They said, no, no. That's too scary. They literally did. You just go up there, come back down and tell us what he said. It started there. God wanted to be, have this direct relationship, but we've constantly put things between us and him. And I think that every time we do that, it's harder to produce the fruit that he calls us to produce. It's harder to actually be transformed into what he's called us to be transformed into. You ever spend so much time with someone you start saying the things they say? Anybody? Catch yourself? Yeah, you know, I have this friend in, uh, in Uganda, and he's not there now, but when we would go and visit him, you know, I'm, I'm there for sometimes 12, 14 days, and I was spending a lot of time around this guy, and he said, bro... Like every three words. I never say bro. But when I came back home, I caught myself saying bro. I'm like, man, I sound so stupid. And I'm like, what is that? Because when we're around somebody, we begin to be like them. So instead of being around God ourselves and around Jesus ourselves, we're constantly putting things in between us and him and then wondering why we don't turn into him very quickly. We've got too much stuff between you and God. Get with Jesus. You want to be like him? Just get with him. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time in the scriptures. Spend some time in worship. You'll start to look like he does. And so we see this story with Saul kind of begins, unfortunately, on a bad note. <laughs> and, it, and it talks about how good he looked, the most handsome of the tribe. And, and what's crazy is it doesn't take very long. It's just a few chapters later. It is some years. But just a few chapters later, we find out that now God is actually pretty upset with how Saul has acted in the midst of being king. Because Saul looked really good on the outside, but he was not very good on the inside. You know, there's a story, I'm not even going to get to it in 1 Samuel 10, when he's trying to show the, the, the kingdom of Israel, their new king, they realize, where is he? What happened to Saul? Where did he go? And Samuel has to go look for him, and guess where he was? It says he was hiding. 
And there was this kind of notation that you start to realize, yeah, maybe this guy was big in stature and he looked good on the outside, but something wasn't quite right on the inside. And we realize just through a few chapters of reading, he's very insecure. He doesn't trust in himself. He doesn't trust in who God's called him to be. And he starts making bad choices, bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, to the point where we know God wants to anoint someone else king. And now we get to the second part of the story, a story of a different king named David. So let's turn to 1 Samuel 16, just a few chapters later. And I'm going to read a bunch of this. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as a king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. You know what's funny about that? I, like, I always make jokes about are us having black and white views of everything we do. Here's God helping his prophet deceive somebody. Just take a heifer with you. Pretend you're going to make a sacrifice. <laughs> Wait a second. Just wrap your mind around that. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? They're kind of afraid of him because when the guy, this guy shows up, not everything he says is great. <laughs> yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is very important, don't judge by his appearance or height. They already did that once, right? For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is unbelievably important for our lives. For some of us, this is Great news. Because some of our outward appearances don't look great. But actually your heart is pure. Your heart is after God, but you find yourself stumbling and making the same mistakes over and over. And, and, it, and it eats you up inside and you're trying to make a change for God. And you're trying to follow his ways. You're trying to do what's right, but some, somehow it looks so hard. And everyone around you looks at your life and it just looks messed up. For you, this is great news. For some, it's bad news. Because our life looks perfect on the outside and everyone thinks things are going well and we work super hard to keep this illusion up, even for ourselves, so when we look in the mirror, in fact, we're the one we lie to the most, but yet internally, something is really wrong. I think we've met both kinds of people, haven't we? I would plead with you, be the first kind. The one that maybe doesn't look so great on the outside because you're just being real and authentic with where God has you and, and the transformation and process you're going through. Don't be the one on the other side that looks good on the outside but not so much on the inside. 
People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so I'm going to just kind of skip down through some of this story. The, the way the story goes is Jesse brings his sons before Samuel, and he goes down the line of every son, and, he, and God keeps saying, no, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. And finally, you know, Samuel's like, there's no more sons. And so Samuel goes, which shouldn't have even been a question, just so you know. The fact that David wasn't invited to this situation is very telling of a probably a, a rough family story. The fact that they were embarrassed a little bit of him, like, eh, we're just not going to bring him. There's, there's all sorts of, you know, possibilities to this story. There's even, uh, I, I talked to one of my Jewish friends, and he says that a lot of the Jewish tale is that he's not actually Jesse's son. That there's something took place in their family that he has a son from someone else. And so he's embarrassed, and he leaves them out to, to, to leave out the sheep. But yet Samuel goes, hey, Jesse, you don't, you don't happen to have any more sons, do you? Which shouldn't have even been a question. And Jesse's like, well, yeah, I guess there's one. Imagine if you were that guy. And David comes, and we know some of the story, right? David comes, Samuel anoints him king. Now he's this little shepherd boy at this time. Somehow neglected, somehow left out in the pasture, forgotten about, or purposely ignored, one or the other. He's not the one that people would be choosing easily to be their king. In fact, it doesn't make any sense at all. But I love these stories because we see these two contrasts. A, a person who looks right for the job, but turns out to be horribly wrong for it. And someone who doesn't look right for the job, but becomes the greatest king that Israel ever has. And I love both these stories because guess what? Both of these men make terribly dumb decisions. In fact, if I were to compare Saul's life with David's life, David makes worse decisions than Saul. Do you want to know how David's or Saul's reign as king in God's eyes comes to an end? They were going to battle, and Samuel was supposed to come and offer a sacrifice before the battle. And Saul gets impatient and offers the sacrifice without him. And God says, you're not going to be king anymore. I'm like, he was impatient? That's the problem here? Now there were other issues. But then you've got David, who literally commits an assassination and steals a man's wife. And when he's confronted, he repents. I love both these stories because they don't make sense to our logical brain or to our eyes. But somehow God looks past every bit of just the external circumstances of both their lives and he knows which one has the pure heart. This is what's great news for us. He looks past David's huge mistakes as a man, as a leader, and even later as a king. And he produces the greatest fruit that humanity has to offer, which is Jesus down the line. Think about this. This is what, this is what Jesus calls our lives to be like. We're called to produce fruit. We're not called to look perfect in the process of it. You know, I started the, kind of by saying, have you ever gone to the store, picked out that good fruit? 
opened it up and been disappointed. Have you ever cut open a fruit that looks kind of gross on the outside and it was actually wonderful? Does anybody have apple trees? Because apples sometimes can look really bad on the skin. In fact, I've had apples that look like they've been kind of eaten around just on the skin. But you cut that thing open and inside it's a wonderful apple. And the whole point of this is our fruit isn't just easily judged by its outward appearance. It's always going to be judged in God's eyes by what's happening internally. And if we want to produce the fruit that Jesus calls us to produce, not just in us, but through us and in others, we have to be aware of what God's doing internally in every one of us. Right now, in this moment, the Holy Spirit is working in every single heart in this room, online, and around the world. Literally. That should be mind-blowing. The Holy Spirit is trying for some just to get a hold of their heart and to get a hold of their eyes, to get a hold of their vision in their life and to say, listen, look to me. Come back to me. And he's trying to get them to that place where they put their trust in him and they, they enjoy salvation grace and they come to him. And some of us who have already enjoyed that, he's just pleading with us, listen, let me transform you. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit's working in every person. And the question is always this, will we let him? Will we let him transform us into a fruit the world can look at? Into a fruit that the world can model its life at? Will we let him take even our brokenness and our difficulty and maybe the things that don't look good on the outside and transform them into amazing, incredible fruit for the world to see his goodness? You know, I read Matthew 7 and I read Matthew 25 and, and I've often prayed this. It's like, if anybody's in danger of it, it's a pastor. I don't want to be a whitewashed tomb. I want to be one who produces the fruit God's called me to produce and to literally see it transform others' lives. I want to be real and authentic, not, not, not okay with where I'm at, even as I display sometimes the things that I'm still processing and God's working in me, I don't want to stay there. I want to move beyond that and see God produce new things in my life. That's the call for every one of us. Can we stand this morning? We spend too much of our lives trying to produce an outward appearance of fruit, yet our fruit will always be determined by the position of our heart. What's the position of your heart today? Maybe you're in this room today. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe, maybe you stumbled in this place. Someone invited you. Maybe you're watching online. You don't even know why. I'm, and and you're, not, you're not even sure if you know Christ or if you've put your trust in him. I want to tell you, that can change in a moment. Right now, you can begin a journey with Jesus that is no longer about just looking right. It's about God transforming you into who you've been designed to be. And I want to take just a minute. I want to, I want to pray all of us together, just a prayer, to start that journey. And I want everyone else to say it out loud. So maybe you've started that journey. Let's pray it together for everyone else in the room or everyone online that might be saying it for the very first time. Can we do that? Let's just follow after me in this prayer. Jesus, 
I want to be like you. I want my life to be transformed. I don't want to produce bad fruit. I don't want to look good on the outside, but be dead on the inside. And so I give my life to you this morning. I give all that I am to you today. I receive this gift of grace in Jesus' name. Listen, if you ever prayed that prayer for the first time or anything like that, I would encourage you, please tell somebody. Share with someone what God's doing within you. Share with someone what God's kind of maybe pressing on you. Maybe you don't even know what you're feeling. That's the Holy Spirit working in your life right now. And for, for those of us who have followed Christ for years and who know Him and have even endeavored to see our lives transformed, can we believe that God still has more transformation for us? He has more fruit to produce in and through us? I want to just pray for the rest of us like that, and then we're going to end with a song. Father, I just thank you for what you're doing in this place today. God, I thank you for this incredible church, this incredible body. God, I thank you even for the call that you have put over us as a church to impact the North Country and to show our neighbors and our families your goodness, Jesus. But God, I ask right now that you would transform us more into what you're like than we were yesterday. God, that we would resemble you more than we did the minute before this one. That we wouldn't just get content, God. But God, we press into all you have for us. God, we want to be people who produce the right fruit. God, we want to be people who, who look maybe even a little rough around the edges on the outside, but on the inside, there's a heart after you, Jesus. There's a life that pursues you. There's a life that goes after your goodness and the things you have for us. So Jesus, we invite you, and every person in this room, we invite you to transform us more. God, let us produce the fruit you've called us to produce so that the world will know of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.